Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography at Rare Book School. Welcome to the most beautiful room Thomas Jefferson ever created. The Neo-Palladian magnificence of the dome room of the Rotunda, which was meant to be the crown of the University of Virginia, the only university in the world founded by an Enlightenment bookman. And bookman Thomas Jefferson was indeed you will remember he created three libraries. You can see here that these have library shelves in them, but this was not the whole of the university library by any means. The books in the cases, especially the ones that are facing out, all the books are rare book school books, but the books that are facing out are an exhibition by um, one of the great daughters of rare book school, Tess Goodman, who is an Eccles scholar and a rising fourth year double major in English and French. Um, she has been working at Rare Book School and studying at Rare Book School since she was a high school student. Look out, bibliographical world. <laughs> it's good that you're with us here today. The Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography is named for the two founding editors of A.B. Bookman's Weekly, publication many of you will know, which from 1948 to 1999 was among the most important journals in, in the whole of the antiquarian bookselling world. Covering book collecting and research librarianship as well as used and rare books selling. The journal was consistently full of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual lecture in honor of her husband, Saul Malkin, in recognition of his contribution to the antiquarian book trade our very own Michael Winship on the faculty here at Rare Book School gave the first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography at Columbia University in December 1985. After Saul died in 1986, just a few months after Winship had delivered the inaugural lecture, Marianne herself continued to support Rare Book School both at Columbia and then at the University of Virginia. In the late 1990s, she allowed the Rare Book School founding director, Terry Bellinger, who happily is with us today, to change the name of the lecture to the Saul M. and Mary Ann O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography. And until her death in 2005, she came down from New York City to attend most of the lectures. She maintained a very active interest in the school, and Rare Book School was a major beneficiary in her will. She was truly, truly one of our greatest friends. Malkin lectures over the years have included an astonishing array of luminaries in the book world. I'll name a few. Greer Allen. Nicholas Barker, William P. Barlow, Robert Darnton, Miriam Foote, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldsmith, James Green, Selby Kiefer, Catherine Kyles Lieb, Paul Needham, William Reese, Ken Rendell, Bernard M. Rosenthal, Roger E. Stoddard, G. Thomas Tansel, Marjorie G. Wynn. You get the idea. Joining their ranks this year as a distinguished Malkin lecturer is the great collector scholar Robert Jackson. 
Bob is a founding and senior partner at Coleman Jackson and Kranz PLC, PLL in Cleveland, Ohio. He's a noted collector of rare books and of tribal art, and he's widely recognized as a writer and a scholar. A corporate lawyer and private equity investor who is also an avid bibliophile, his collection is truly astonishing and, I might add, envy-making. His broad interests are reflected in his affiliations with such organizations as the Groyer Club, the Rofan Club, the Association Internationale de Bibliophile Paris, and the, uh, the Fellowship of American Bibliophilic Associations, of which FABS, known to many of you, he was one of the founders and the chairman. He's been a trustee of many organizations. His service to the field of the humanities is known throughout the United States. And he has lectured widely throughout the United States and Europe with great distinction. He's one of the United States' premier collectors of Victorian literature. His Dickens collection alone would make many men weep. Um, but he's had other collections too. He's an avid collector and writer about Rockwell Kent and Eugene O'Neill, and once upon a time he had the most important William Burroughs collection in the world. Um, he's traveled to more than a hundred countries with his wife Donna, at the reception, he may well regale you not only with bibliographic tales, but with his time, for example, in Afghanistan, I think it was, when you were held at gunpoint, some vacation. He and his wife, Donna, who's a tremendous support to him, are great collectors of oceanic and African tribal art. Um, they've even um, published a book on African ceremonial weapons. Uh, their interests are broad, but there are few scholar collectors in the United States who can match our speaker today. Bob Jackson is going to speak to us this evening on Victorian cereals, essential parts of the 19th century imagination. It gives me the greatest pleasure to introduce my friend and a great friend of the book, Bob Jackson. Excuse me, my speech just dropped. <laughs> Well, I'm very honored to be here. Actually, this is the first, I've given in my time probably 300 plus speeches wherever, and this is the first speech I've ever been late to. Now you look at your clock and you watch and you say, it's 5.30, but in fact, I'm 11 months late. And it's all because I had an accident, a foot accident last year, and I had it canceled last year, and I'm delighted to be here today. And I thank Michael for that because one of his many talents is also prescribing for how to heal a foot injury. <laughs> and I thank his brother, whom I don't, do not know, but thank him for me. Uh, it's hard to believe that I'm actually here because I, when I was an early collector in 1976, I did receive the Malkin uh, report, uh, magazine, and I thought to myself, I would like to collect. Who is this man? And it's hard to believe that today I'm sitting here under his uh, name and giving a talk in this, in this room. So it's a very special time. I was very impressed yesterday when, I've never been to uh, Charlottesville before with my wife, and Barbara uh, Heritage took us through some of the collections, but we wound up talking with her for a while, and, and she showed us all the, uh, some of the material that the school has. And, I just, and she showed us, I thought that at one time we had collected most of the parts issues that exist other than what's in the Aarons Library in uh, New York. And she showed me some parts by Walter Scott, not complete sets, but examples of different parts. And I, I've never seen them, I don't have them. 
and are they for sale? <laughs> but uh, as, a, as a result of that, and recognizing that the material that you, you uh, collect is, rare, is used for working material, I hope that when I come get home uh, from the trip that I'm able to, I have a particular uh, penny dreadful that I would like to send to uh, the school on, on uh, our behalf, just, just to hope you, you use it to work with. It's not complete, it's fortunate, but it, it, it does, it's rare and it's, uh, it's useful. My notes went turned upside down. Uh, I was also going to put the, uh, my notes on an iPad. Fortunately, I did not. <laughs> but I was going to do it, and then I thought to my, I've never done this before, and, I would, and then I thought to myself how disrespectful for Thomas Jefferson to be in this room and have the, the, an iPad here. But recognizing who he was and what kind of innovative person he was, I think he would have applauded it. But I didn't know at the time, and I'm not familiar with dealing with uh, iPad notes, because uh, Michael had said this room is not conducive to doing PowerPoint. So the experiment that I have right now is that I, gave, I provided you with handouts of material that I used to use PowerPoint for. And uh, eventually I'll talk about this. I can't point to it and say, well, look at that. And, at the, and unfortunately, I don't have the pages numbered. So I'll have to just suggest to you uh, where they might be. Uh, what's ironic about it, and I mentioned it to Michael before, is that we used to do handouts decades ago when we didn't have PowerPoint and we didn't have slides. We used to use handouts, and something I haven't done for, haven't used for many years. So bear with me on that. You know, art begins with the object. This magnificent room is the object of art. But I'm not talking about anything today, but the object, which, which is a paper-bound booklet printed with movable type and illustrated with engravings and lithographs. This object is part of a series similar in look, sequential in time, and linked by continuity of subject matter. In the 19th century, these objects carried affordable entertainment to a growing middle class, a weekly or monthly diversion, then when heaped into a single volume and subjected to the geologic pressure of time and affection, were transmuted into a kind of cultural marble and erected as pillars of Western civilization, where until recently they stood stern, lofty, and immovable. Now, when I talk about parts and issues, there are all kinds of parts and diversions, but I'm talking about those that were issued in weekly or monthly, and sometimes uh, bi-monthly parts were called diversions. I'm speaking, of course, of the Victorian serial part. This remarkable cultural product was printed by the hundreds of thousands in a day. Very few have come down to this century and even fewer uh, exist in good form, you know, perfect condition, uh, etc. But I'm, I've been fortunate to be able to collect what I think was a, uh, a large collection over a period of time. And actually, for the most part, I collected uh, as a parts collector, not as necessarily as a Dickens collector or an Elliott collector, uh, and so I really, I never had competition in that sense, but I had competition for other people with Dickens or Thackeray or Trollope. And I was able to collect these material, smell them, touch them, feel them, read them. And, and I will say as a, as a matter of preamble that I probably read 95% of everything I, I collect, but I have many, I have over 12 collections in, in at home. I'd like, to I'd like to talk about some of the ways they reflect singular aspects of the Victorian era and foreshadow the world of modern entertainment because it's my thesis and eventually I've been writing about this for a long time and intend to continue writing about it that without Victorian serials you wouldn't have Harry Potter. Think about it. 
You wouldn't have Star Wars. You wouldn't have The Sopranos. You wouldn't have The Wire. You wouldn't have so much of the serial. And so many of the writers that write today go back to the way Dickens wrote. Serial publications didn't start with the Victorian era. It didn't start with Homer. It started way before then. And it has manifested itself today with the, with the entertainment that we know as uh, television and the movies. Now today the critics uh, call to justify and verify their legitimacy, call their material Dickinson, you know, for their character, density of character and social detail. It should be, it shouldn't be surprising that today's critics should reach back to the Dickens and the Victorians to validate their own seriousness, which is kind of ironic because Dickens in those days was not considered a serious writer when he first started out. But eventually, the 19th century, there were serials that at some point were serialized were quite important, such as Uncle Tom's Cabin and War and Peace. And there are many other material, but they all came secondarily. Most of these book, most of this material was issued in books form first, and then eventually they were serialized, particularly in Russia and in Germany and France. You can't talk about serials without taking us back to Victorian England. The Victorian serial novelist, and we have to look at him as a person. It's so often we talk, we study this, the history of the book. And unfortunately, I've never taken Michael's course, so I can't say it. But you talk about the book as, a, as an object as itself. But in fact, you've got to look at the novelist, the person who wrote the book, and what they supported. But they performed spectacular feats. He or she erased with deadlines and juggled characters while leaping from plot point to plot point. Our admiration for these writers increased by the knowledge that they accomplished their feverish invention while balanced over the chasm of penury in a society that did not have a safety net. Very few authors could maintain their pace. And Dickens was, surprising, surprisingly enough, the only one who, mad enough and energetic enough to do it back book after book through a whole career, throwing off narratives with indestructible steampunk whirly gigs, if anyone knows what steampunk whirly gig is. Um, anyway, all 15 of Dickens' novels were released in serial form. There's some question about how they were done, but six were weekly or monthly ma magazine serials and nine in monthly parts. Now, I just want to clarify because as a bibliophile type, you know, Oliver Twist, the second novel, was issued in book form first and then serialized. And there was other kinds of issues, but that's for another day, another discussion. The challenge was to hold the reader's attention. A catchy song uh, has to have a good beat. Serial publications established rhythm of composition and consumption that carried writers and readers along like a popular song. Each serial part had to end with a dramatic downbeat while building anticipation uh, for the coming segment. It could be a, a, a grueling pace. Many Victorian novels were serialized over 19 months uh, with 24 to 30 uh, pages in each uh, issue. But 24 to 34 pages was only the editorial cut. If you look at these serials themselves, they had, some had vast numbers of ads before and after. And with the serials of the 30, 20, the Victorian period did not have the same kind of balance that the ones of the 19th, 18th and 17th century had, and some in the 20th century. Because you can't talk about the Victorian serial without looking to the serials that we have today. But that's for another talk, another article. But the middle class changed all that with their insatiable attitude. First of all, the, the earliest known book in uh, English history was in 1678. The book was called Moxon's Mechanical Exercises or the Doctrine of Handiworks, issued in 38 number parts 
which was probably the first English book. And I, some of this information I, I got from a man whom I knew briefly, Anthony Rodo, who died just a few years ago, and I think um, Terry knew him quite fairly well. Um, and it was, it's a wonderful uh, book to read uh, that, he, that he wrote. The, um, what's interesting and rather ironic about the book, the book was a landmark book about mechanics of books that, to, to make books. And then recently I, went, I was at the Newberry Library and they showed me a book that was written in 1719 to 1720 by Elissa Haywood called Love in Excess, a woman writer surprisingly at the time because most women writers hid under male names uh, at that time. And it was a book in parts. I have to own the earliest unbound un, uh, book called Mrs. Tusser's Husbandry, which is also a book that was issued in the 17th century. The upper classes in those days, like for all books, were the target for the most for the books until the beginning of the 19th century. An ample library was a conventional status marker. In fact, there's a painting in, in uh, German, in Vienna, of a uh, collector, and it's called The Collector in the Leopold Museum. And it shows books as being, in the 16th century, it shows books as being the status for him. But the middle class changed all that. Their insatiable demand for novels drove innovation in publishing and distribution. And it all started primarily with Dickens and his group. Books and parts reflect the spirit of classical li liberalism. Ordinarily, people invested a few shillings at a time and got a few chapters in return. In time, these chapters accumulated into a single book, which in many cases could be returned to the publisher and bound with a single volume. And if you look at the, um, the advertisements, you, you can see the history of, of a book by their advertisements. I used, to read, you, I used to read at night my advertisements as, as I would read a novel because you could tell a lot about the ethics and the mores of the period. Books and parts allowed publishers to accumulate capital in advance of the publication and invest in a better class of books and author and to move up, up to a better class. Now I just want to say one thing. Books and parts came into existence popularly in 1790-25 when the stamp tax in England you know, levied a tax on books and if a book was less than a shilling or, or two shillings it, had a, it didn't have to pay a tax and so parts serials came into existence during that period it didn't come into existence in 1836 or 1820 it came in a hundred years before this is a little known fact but it impacted on the political Process, process in Europe. This room is beautiful. This room is beautiful, but it's dry. <laughs> the experience of reading a book in parts is very different from reading a, a single volume, and I, and I encourage everyone who has the opportunity to have read some of the books in parts because I would do that and then I would reread the book in a single volume and there's a material difference in how you do this. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk later about Stephen King and the Green Mile as, as a contemporary uh, uh, version of it. Each part came in pages and pages of advertising. In some cases there was more pages of ads than editorial comment. People who are accustomed to think of the 19th century novel as an elevated cultural product are, are startled to learn that Daniel Deronda, which was one of the great Eliot books, was appeared next to ads for trusses, tailors, and the 19th century equivalent of joy buzzers and x-ray specs. And, and if you have a chance, you can see how important, even Middlemarch was that way, and the, the Prime Minister. Most of the commercial space was also given over to uh, ads for, for books and serials. And the way I used to find my own books was to read the ads for these books that go to dealers for wants. And sometimes that was successful, 
And most of the time, the books and serials uh, just disappeared and were torn up. Between the advertising and the fictional narrative, each part is like a core sample of the Victorian mind. The sociology of Parts publication has inspired a great deal of scholarship. Parts percolated down through the classes and encouraged the spread of literacy. Excitement for new authors and serials spread virally through the 19th century, the equivalent of the water cooler talk. Parts were read aloud in workshops and par parlors. And in fact, during the, this period of time, it, it said that when parts came out many times, the, uh, the uh, work people would hold up the uh, parts on the windows so that the people who didn't have the money could read the parts uh, from the window itself, an example of liberalism at its best. Starts public, parts publication merged the world of Victorian art and fiction into a vigorously organic entity. The whole enterprise might be said to have begun with pictures and not words. And the story of Dickens' Pickwick Papers pointedly describes that. In 1835, Chapman and Hall had a notion to do a picture book. They, they had an uh, illustrator named Robert Seymour who had been very successful with his books and they decided that they would contact Robert Seymour with the idea of having him do a book with some writing to explain what was to happen. And they were going to illustrate it with hunting and fishing scenes. Seymour already had a success with a series of prints. Now remember, parts were not were born in 1836, but they manifest itself and flourished during that time. Now, all, all that was needed for that particular book was a writer, and Chapman and Hall gauged a writer, that writer, young journalist who already enjoyed success with a non-fiction book, part uh, called Sketches by Boz. Charles Dickens was Boz, and he did not intend to take second billing. He applied his full force and effect and personality to the project, bulldozed the original concept of the way, and replaced it with character and situations more to Dickens' liking. And this was Dickens' character throughout his whole life. Most cruelly, he was critical of Seymour's illustrations. Dickens attempted to micromanage the visual aid of the project, deepening the artist's pre-existing tendency to melancholia. Robert Seymour did five illustrations for the Pickwick paper. Then he had enough. He completed the sixth drawing, stepped into the back, his backyard and shot himself. His final illustration is moving. It's called The Dying Clown. It shows a man on the bed, emaciated and throwing out his arms and wearing a, a face of melancholy, of, of horror and misery. But death did not deter Dickens. He had the publishers engage another illustrator and barreled right along. The final first part of Pickwick came out in March 1836. It, wrapped, it was wrapped in sky blue covers with drawings by the late Seymour. It offered 32 pages of text and a healthy number of ad pages. One of the benefits of owning this series is seeing the story of, of publication measured in the thickness of the parts. Part one flopped, big time. Part two had a very few ads. Part three and four had fewer ads. The advertisers have decided that Pickwick is going nowhere and they all jumped ship. Um, by the way, if anyone's interested in, in the full story about this, Robert Patton, of Texas uh, wrote a detailed book about the history of the Pickwick Papers. But suddenly part five puts on weight. The advertisers are back. Every number thereafter was fat and happy at Mr. Pickwick. Uh, the change was entirely due to the introduction of a new character in the story of Sam Veller. Now in those days the English did not use the W as W but as V, 
because he still had the express the German king and they used to pronounce these words different the W differently. His charming, impudent character showed some catch of the imagination. He became an overnight superstar, as some characters do in, in serials. We, we've seen that in the Harry Potter stories, we've seen that in Star Wars, and it happened initially in uh, Pickwick Papers. One of the benefits of publishing publish, parts publishing is that it allows the author to alter the narrative repose to response to the public opinion. Dickens saw that public opinion, decided pro-Weller, and he beefed up the ser ser uh, servant's parts. Sam Weller ran away with the next 15 parts in Pickwick paper and, and launched the great age of the serial novel. Parts publishing took off after Pickwick. Everyone had the, understood the advantage of books and pieces. By the way, books also in parts are called fascicules, if, if anyone ever sees that word around. William Thackeray, George Eliot, Jean Jean Sue, Anthony Trollope, Ainsworth, Trollope, Lever, and many others were on to, to be released in parts. Some were written in re real time, others were published in a single volume and then released in uh, parts and republished. And the history of this is yet to be written fully. Uncle Tom's Cabin in this country was published as a two-decker, but in, in, in um, England it was published as a, as a serial with George Cruikshank's illustrations. Now the books and parts were branded by color and topography, and, I, and I, why don't you open your uh, handouts? This, this is my experiment now. Um, and I can't tell you which pages. No, I, I have one. The ones under the ones under literature, you, you can just thumb through them, and you'll see that what I mean by you need the visualization of the serials because they're really quite gorgeous in their part. Uh, by the way, th this handout was done for the Grolier Club exhibition in 1996. Ironically, at the time, we had two exhibitions in, in, in New York, one at the Whitney on William Burroughs, and it was kind of ironic that people would say, how can you be a, a Burroughs collector and a, and a uh, 19th century collector? But that's a story for another time, because Burroughs was a person unto himself, and not like Dickens. So Dickens was blue in color, Thackeray was yellow, George Eliot was gray, and Anthony Trollope was black and red. Surtees were dress color. And there other, another parts man, other parts issuers had different colors and identification. And that's the beginning of the modern day of advertising. And you can see that on the first couple of pages. Now the, 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 uh, the book on the upper left on the first page is really is, a, is one of the few American books and parts 1810, which was the first issue of Shakespeare's uh, plays in, in the United States with the Johnson uh, introductions. But the rest of the books there are most, all English books. And the next page is done, you can see how, you know, the, the colors of these plates and the design of the covers uh, were really remarkable. And these, color, these covers were like comic books. They would capture the imagination of the reader, and they would buy off these covers, and uh, that's how they were sold. And for the most part, is in bibliographic history, most covers never changed. Some did, but the ones that changed were mostly from the 18th century and early, early 19th century. Uh, some early 18th century had no covers. Uh, they were just plain uh, monochromatic or plain. Anyway, by the way, some of the color on the, on the photographs are, are, were uh, came from the printer and not from the photograph. Many, now we're, many of the parts were sold as stationaries or railroad stalls. And, and there's someone, Donna, her name is, if I'm correct. 
that she was history, studying the history of book dealers in the 17th century. Am I correct on that? And she's going to the 18th century too. Because of, a little bit. Okay, fair enough. Um, because the history of how books got to be distributed and published, uh, and, and I'm not an, an expert in this area, is quite fascinating. Because books and parts were, you know, a lot of the publishers became started out as stationers, and they sold it from their, and then they had to make distributions to the to the uh, countryside. A man or a woman in a hurry could pass an eye over the inventory of the places and see at a glance whether whether or not they carried a favorite author, or if the author was writing a new book in parts. Can you just imagine a, a display like that? at a railroad station, like the, in New York, where they have the newsstands, and people buying these books. That's, that's how the marketing came in those days. Parts magazines and magazine serials pioneered many narrative conventions we now take for granted. And that's why serials are such an important part of our, our ethos. What we know now is cliffhangers were rare in the 18th century. Books like Tom Jones, actually Don Quixote before then, and Robinson Crusoe were issued in parts. For instance, Crusoe's discovery of a, of a lone footprint in the supposedly deserted island, uh, he virtually wastes his time by, of this bombshell by putting the parts at the beginning of a chapter. By the eight, 19, eight, 19th century, after 1836, this would have been at the end of this, uh, the chapter, and everyone would wait for the next serial to, to appear. Any good Victorian novel would have had known to have held it until the end of the chapter. So this is how things have changed. And, and if you, there's studies been made about the change in the writing of these various novelists. And, and serials had a material part in how they did it. Victorian authors also became virtuosos of suspense, playing down on playing on reader expectations like musical instruments. And there's a parallel with music development. Somewhat earlier, composers like Beethoven began emphasizing the properties of tension and release to produce the towering dramatic effects, and this became the beginning of the Romantic era. The culminating figure in this era was Richard Wagner. I don't know if Wagner read his serials, but he was, the, he was the inventor of the serial opera. The ring cycle. But even that wasn't consistent. Um, what's interesting about the circle, the, the, um, the, the operas, and I just thought of a when I was 10 years old, my first little um, essay was on the mythology of the ring cycle. And to this day, I can't figure out how I, how I came up with that idea. But I've always been a Wagner fan, and I've, I've traced to New York many times to see this, the ring cycle. So, so it must be, and that went along with my comic books at the time. And the Dr. Doolittle series, which was also a serial. Writers of serial novels were made up the story as they went along, but for the brave souls there was no going back who did, made it in real time. They pushed ahead according to a prearranged page length and published schedule. Thackeray, and it's a quote, called it a life of death struggle with the unwritten number. Readers had the privilege of watching a story emerge in real time, and, there, and many of the authors um, had nervous breakdowns, and if anyone wants to read about a nervous breakdown, read New Grub Street by George Kissing, which was not a serial, but it it, it describes the psychology of, of a, a man who couldn't uh, handle it. Pickwick wasn't the only time that, that readers determined the direction of the narrative. The death of Little Nell in Dickens' The Old Curiosity Shop and the happy ending of David Copperfield are both have been said to have been affected by public demand. And uh, one time I wrote an article about that concept and I got some interesting letters from England 
that I wasn't quite right about it, and to this day I defend my position. So I didn't realize that I caused so much controversy. The regiment was punishing for authors, but it was called the crucible. But this methodology of writing was called the crucible of the English novel. The heat of production burned off the extra of narratives and left only the red-hot core pulsing as the, as the forge on the forge. Serials were criticized for lurid sensation. Oliver Twist, as an example, with his underworld settings and murder and fallen women was denounced from the pulpit and more than one real life murder was blamed on the baneful influence of the serial novel. Doesn't that sound familiar about, remember we had television being caused in the death and inciting riots with teenagers? It's the same thing back in the 19th century. It was a period of intense class consciousness. Writers and publishers cold-bloodedly manipulated the cost, content, and covers of serials to appeal to specific demographics. The genre of book parts, which were targeted towards the lower classes, with sensational tales of gruesome murder. The, the nickname of these serials were called Penny Dreadfuls, Price Point, and Subject Matter. Penny dressers were also known as bloods, price point, subject matter. They pandered to the lowest and most debased sensibilities. I read some of them. I didn't really enjoy them, but they're fascinating to read, and I would encourage you, particularly the one I send you when I get it, when I come home. My collection also includes two complete sets of Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street known by, I would presume, most people here. But probably the most famous of the dreads that ever existed. The literacy rate, there's a great deal of argument about the literacy rate of England uh, at, in the 19th century. And I would encourage you to read, if you're interested, Richard Altick's book, Altick's book of the 1950s. He, he's, he just died a few years ago. He wrote the seminal book in this area, which calls talking about the common, common reader in England. But the one undisputed fact is they were very low at the beginning of the century and very high at the end of the century. Now much of this growth took place because England, the government in England at that time demanded that everyone who goes to school had to learn how to read. And you had to learn how to, you had to read in order to, take them to get a job. But I wouldn't be surprised if the mania for serials wasn't also an important fact in motivating middle class and the working man to learn how to read. And I maintain that the serials had probably as much as more to do with uh, the, the literacy rate in England than any other factor. Young people who couldn't read would be socially isolated, just like any teenage boy today or girl who couldn't text or use a cell phone. Don't you think they would be isolated too? They would be able to discuss the latest doings of the Penny Dreadfuls with characters like Varney the Vampire or Wagner the Werewolf, and to be missed out the lurid pleasures that their parents disapproved. Serial publications also inspired a new intimacy between author and reader. Serials were different from single, single volumes which came into the home all at one time, with the author's personality and narrative fully contained between the covers. Serial novels, and this is a speculation on my part, were like letters from a friend on a holiday. They talked to you, they were there with you every month for 19 months, for the most part. The reader looked forward to the next chapter and was disappointed when it didn't come out. Dickens was always regular in his uh, having serials issued, but when, and Thackeray was very punctual when he wrote uh, um, Vanity Fair, but when he wrote the history of Pendennis, uh, he, had, he was sick and couldn't write for three months, and there was a hue and cry at that time until he had to, he recuperated and came back and, and wrote again. The illust talking about illustrations was a critical success in many parts publication. George Cruikshank is a towering figure in this area, for the, 19th, for the 19th century. 
Now before George Cruikshank, it was Robert Cruikshank and Isaac Cruikshank. Isaac was the, uh, the father and Robert was the brother. There's also a Percy Cruikshank, which I showed to Michael. When I, I, did I show that? And I still don't know who he was, but I think he was a cousin. But, but he captured on, he relied on his name. He was the Dickens of illustrations, inventive, prolific, and blessed with an insatiable appetite for character. He was the Picasso of the time. Cruikshank illustrated novels and parts. That was his main strength. He also issued his own branded books and parts. And in the material I handed out, you'll see two in particular, my sketchbook, or my life in sketches, and the Comic Almanac. The Comic Almanac is, was, was uh, featured on the uh, poster that uh, uh, was issued by the Rare Book School. The pages were crowded with zany figures and wry dialogue, very much the mad magazine of the day. Cruikshank's style partnered well with other narratives like Oliver Twist. That's where he got fired. Dickens' second serial after Pickwick. It's interesting to note that both Cruikshank and Seymour uh, maintained that much of the characters in both the Pickwick papers and Oliver Twist came from their drawings. In fact, Seymour's wife dogged Dickens for years to try to collect money but never succeeded. And Dickens fired Cruikshank and never, never had any business from him again. Victorian illustrators were justified in having a certain sense of self-importance. They printed an image of character faces, postures, and clothing that stayed vivid with them along with the author's description and faded from memory. And this is still true today. You know, so many of the characters that you see are the imagination of a particular illustrator. Illustrated books were prominent after the beginning and end of the Golden Age of Parts publication. Among the last important books of the period was the illustrations of Thomas Mallory's Mortartur, published by J.M. Gent in 1893 to 94. And you know, you also have in there the Rollinson books um, with his with their drawings, which would actually predate the Victorian age, 1820s. And you'll see the, how these characters still, you, you may not know the books, but you know these characters. My parts collection also included um, the Beardsley debut, which was Yellow Books, and the Savoy. Uh, and, and, but I also got a letter from Charles Dickens. Now, Charles Dickens didn't know me. He didn't write to me, because named Jackson, Fowlis Jefferson at some point in time, but no relation. It wasn't addressed to me personally, but it was an honor to simply hold the letter in my hand. And, and the story of how I got to that letter is, is not it was prophetic at the time, and, and, and in time it became expensive. I've been interested in 19th century novels since high school. I, I, while I majored in philosophy in college, my minor, one of my minors was in 19th century English literature. A book dealer knew my taste, pulled some, something off the shelf. I heard about it, but never seen a Dickens novel in parts. Now, in the q and I'll answer the question now. That was 1974 and 75. It was Little Dorrit. Collectors, you know, store most books in clamshells, as does most institutions, but they usually don't have the money to pay for them if they didn't, weren't existed in the, in the 18th, uh, when they were uh, first made. When he opened the box, the book, the letter fell out. It was in Dickens' hand and addressed to a lawyer friend. The lawyer had nothing to do with little Dorrit. It was about the lawyer's daughter named Dora. Dickens wrote to tell him that, that he had a named character in David Copperfield, named after the lawyer's daughter. Being a lawyer myself, I was charmed. I related. I wound up buying both the book and the letter in parts. And that's how my, my parts collection got started. It's, it's the way I suspect many collectors start. Working with what was out there. I picked up a Pickwick, picked up a David Copperfield, 
I covered the whole range of Victorian novels and parts and alto leaf because I ran out of collections. I started adding non-fiction titles in art, science, natural history, theology, and household management, all issued in parts. And, and going back to the handout, so I won't forget it, you'll see examples. There, there weren't as many, but to, give, to highlight books and parts, you have the Audubon in America, was issued in parts. The Elephantine editions were in parts, as well as the Quarto editions. The, the theology, I had the Cardinal Newman book in parts. Richard Dana, Jude Sr., issued a book in parts called The Idle Man. And there were others, uh, but not they weren't as ex extensive as the others. And frankly, they were kind of boring for the most part. Either you you broke them up and hung them on walls, or you just put them on your shelves. One small part of my collection is devoted to American Parts publication. There are a few, a few because Parts never, its serials never caught out in the 19th century America the way it did in England. At first, this seemed mysterious. We know that Dickens serials were popular in America, and in fact, you know, when the boat came in in New York, Boston, and Philadelphia, there were people running to the, uh, the wharves to try and get copies of the book. And for your information, for, for those, you know, Dickens uh, had American parts issued, but there were parts issued in uh, Philadelphia, Boston, and New York. And to try and collect them, it's almost impossible. But great. But Great Britain and the continent had a well-developed retail distribution works. Their cities were lined by, linked by coach, rail, and mail. Most people didn't move around a lot, and, money, and many had occupied the same dwelling for generations. And what's ironic, that's still true today. The Americans still move around as, almost as much as they did in the 19th century. But the continent and the English uh, don't move around. England's too small a country and, de and too densely populated, like in Japan, and it's just just not the just not the custom. Books and parts and their audiences knew where to find each other, and their confidence on that side made each other could be found at the same place at the beginning of the series and the end. Not so in America, where people were separated by long distances and the national. This ethos was shaped by the willingness to up and light out to the territories at a moment's notice. America lacked the stable, steady, and well-connected market necessary for parts to thrive. What's interesting is that the parts that were issued in America, many of them were about New York for New Yorkers, Boston for Boston, or Philadelphia. These parts were all regionalized for the most part. Dickens, you know, the reprints, you know, Thackeray issued parts in America, you know, some of the other uh, novels. But for the most part, they were nonfiction until the, the, the penny dreadfuls of the period, which were detective stories and the Hardy stories. The Victorian era saw rapid cultural and technological turnover. The growth of railroads, mail service, the telegraph, and mass transportation changed lives and reception rapidly the way that computers and internal internet does today. The parts of the publication and serial novels were really quite short. They really existed only until the, for 60 or 70 years. Books and parts are accept, you know, eventually ceased to be published, but the serial never, it just stuttered, it sputtered at that time. By the, ter by the turn of the tw 19th, 20th century, Magazines became popular again. In the Saturday Evening Post would have such authors as Jack London, Tarkington, uh, what, uh, P. G. Woodhouse. The newspapers ran serials and cinemas ran serials. In 1996, and you have the examples there. I had this show in New York, which I, which was a kind of remarkable show because the New York Times, for the first time, covered a, a Grolier Club exhibit. And I'm told between 15 and 20,000 people came to it. 
uh, and because they had never seen parts before, they, they, they had not been covering Grow Your Club for many years. And I decided, King at that time had, had decided to um, publish the Green Mile in parts because he was a fan of Dickens. So I, and now I, I, this is a true story, I, I, I got his telephone number, I called him. And I asked him if he would send me a copy of his manuscript and a couple of his books in parts so I could display on the show. He called me. He called me back and he said, sure. He said, I like Cleveland. Our footprint is not that obscure anymore. And he, and I had this, in part, I couldn't find a copy of, his, of the Green Mile with the manuscript. But you have an Eric Kraft book in, in the manuscript, in the, uh, which is a hyperfiction type book that, change, that changes the story if, if you wish to do that. It's never gone well. But Eric was an interesting writer at the time. Serial publications can have a powerful effect on the structure and style of narrative. But no author publishes, publishes serials for artistic purposes. Serial publication was and remains a potent commercial format. As it's most nakedly effective, it can be narrative crack cocaine drive, driving the reader to seek and consume more and more of the product. Today, television drives the serial in its purest form. Twenty years ago, each episode on TV was a self-contained unit. Most series are either full service or serials. Even so, even today, most television programs are serials, and even the reality programs are serials at their manufacturer at the bottom. Once a Victorian book, once a Victorian book in parts was issued in full, it was then published as a single volume or a triple decker. In the same way, television today, once the program's over, they issue the DVDs as a package, allowing us to watch the whole thing on the way through, through without interruption. So there's, there's a balance between what TV does with what the serials did then. So the period of Victorian serial publications that began with the, the posthumous papers of the Pickwick Club in 1836 to 1837 and flared out in the pre-Raphaelite splendor some 70 years later, it's itself only an episode in humanity's ongoing efforts to make sense of itself through stories. I mean, I think all of us try to do that, try to understand who we are. Any discussion of serials begin, must begin and end with Charles Dickens. This industrious author lived his entire life to the rhythm of the serial narrative. He died with three parts published, three parts on his desk, and the pressure, you know, some, some say that he died with, because of too much pressure. He, he destroyed himself in exhaustive readings and destroyed his constitution. Dickens died at the age of 54. Think about that with what he did during that much period. The serial is about tension, pulse, the march of times, and the passing of days. It is a condensed version of how we live in real time, madly attempting to extemporize our way to a brutal deadline. We may close the final chapter with a neat finis, with young lovers wed, violins, Villains punished and unity destroyed and restored or restored. Or we may end as some parts of, of serial books did in the middle of a sentence. The serial folds unfolds on the product of calculation, imagination, random chance, and necessity. One of the last great novels of the period in the 1870s was Trollope's The Way We Live Now. Serials are not only about the way we live then, they are about the way we live now. Time may be an illusion, but the serials march on. Thank you. I think Bob will be willing to take a few questions prior to our reception. Tom? This is for the, uh, 
Well, in the Pickler papers, the first part I think sold a couple, seventy thousand or a hundred thousand copies. The next part sold between and these are quotes from Robert uh, Patton, who teaches it. I think I'm not sure Texas SMU or some Rice. And then he, in this book, he talks about uh, the next issue is collected ten thousand or twenty thousand. That's why part two is the rarest. If you want to have a, a perfect Pickwick paper, you need to have 102 points, and point two, part two is the hardest to get. Then points, then part three was 30,000, then part four was 40. Then they went up to the hundreds of thousands. So he, he's, and, and part, Dickens for the most part sold in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, and that's true of Thackeray and true of uh, Trollope. Trollope wrote 70, over 70 books. So he was prolific. I, I, there's been studies made on it, but I've never read them. Baseball in its innings was similar in this than most sports. The other comment I have is about the serialization in the scientific literature, which Or the writer wasn't finished with the article yet. Uh, I think that's unlikely for Popular Science Monthly. No, but the earliest. Uh, yeah. Isn't serialization a device to get you to buy the next issue? You have the article and you want to know how it comes out? That seems to me pretty obvious. Uh, the answer H.G. Wells wrote The History of Science in serial form. And uh, there were some others, but not many. They were never caught on. Well, it's not a problem. I think I think how the topic and this form of publishing must have been immensely profitable in the 19th century with money made from it far beyond what publishing had achieved before serialization. How was the profit divided between the talent and the writer? Um, I've read I've read a lot in it, but I've never studied it. There's a, diff there's a difference. I didn't retain it, but Dickens ultimately controlled his own entity, he, and he tried to start his own company. Or and then he went into this household goods to, to do it. He had more control over the serials in that magazine. So to give you an answer, to give you a direct answer, I can't. Or I just don't remember. But I think the the authors just got. You know, maybe ten percent, if, if lucky. Sometimes twenty percent. So you, they would do it by guineas. They'd somebody, they would sometimes only if you if you finish a, a, a serial, one serial, you'd get ten guineas or twenty guineas or whatever. It wasn't as sophisticated as it was to, as it is today, and only a few writers could could make money off. Uh, they could make a living, but they couldn't get rich. Dickens was an exception, but he he had so many. Uh, debts in so many households that he had to keep writing. George Eliot um, made money, but she was she had she she was married at the time, or living with George, uh, I think George Lewis, and was able to survive that way. But it's an interesting subject matter that I just never got into. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Would it have been impossible to have, have violated the copyright and, and sort of pirated it the way we read so much about today? 
Well, yes, I mean, Dickens actually fought for it. And I think, and I can't tell you it was 1845 or 1855, but he actually went to America because they were stealing from him to fight for the a Copyright Act. And over a period of time, America initiated a Copyright Act. There was a copyright in England, and the, and the, and the authors were protected, but not the United States. And that, it took decades to protect the writers. The publishers in the United States were stealing from uh, the English writers and the French writers at the same time. I mean, you'll find translations of Dumas and Sue and, uh, in, in, in America. They just, that's how they made their money, you know, stealing these uh, copyright, uh, these books. Our conversation will continue in Alderman 109, where the reception was on Monday and Sunday evening. But before we retire there, We'd like to thank Bob and to give him a poster of his talk. Oh, thank you. And, and um, a note from the staff. And, and please join me in thanking Bob. Thank you very much.